Are you here for a good night's sleep? Are you here for a good story? Well, now get this. Listeners from 18 other countries are here with you too. And we're so grateful to all of you. Now picture this. Your father and your uncle are both prolific writers and you love a good horror story. So what other choice do you have? Well, after Alfred McLelland Burridge's father died, he took on the family trade and became a deft and subtle teller of ghost stories, often reviewed as England's finest. Curiously, though, Wikipedia notes he was also a lapsed Catholic. Well, let's find out why in our next two episodes. So please, tuck in. Mm-hmm. And enjoy Playmates. Although everybody who knew Stephen Everton agreed that he was the last man under heaven who ought to have been allowed to bring up a child, it was fortunate for Monica, that she fell into his hands, else she had probably starved or drifted into some refuge for waifs and strays. True, her father, Sebastian Threlfall, the poet, had plenty of casual friends. Almost everybody knew him slightly, and right up to the time of his fatal attack of delirium tremens, which his severe alcohol withdrawal, he contrived to look one of the most interesting of the regular frequenters of the Café Royal. But people are generally not hasty to bring up the children of casual acquaintances, particularly when such children may be suspected of having inherited more than a fair share of human weaknesses. Of Monica's mother, Literally nothing was known. Nobody seemed to be able to say if she were dead or alive. Probably she had long since deserted Threlfall, for some consort able and willing to provide regular meals. Everton knew Threlfall no better than a hundred others knew him, and was ignorant of his daughter's existence until the father's death was a new topic of conversation in literary and artistic circles. People vaguely wondered what would become of the kid. And while they were still wondering, Everton quietly took possession of her. Who's who will tell you the year of Everton's birth, the name of his alma maters, uh, Winchester and Magdalen College, Oxford, the titles of his books, and of his predilections for skating and mountaineering. But it is necessary to know the man a little less superficially. He was then a year or two short of 50 and looked 10 years older. He was a tall, lean man with a delicate pink complexion, an oval head, a Roman nose, blue eyes which looked out mildly through strong glasses, 
and thin straight lips drawn tightly over slightly protruding teeth. His high forehead was, well, bare, for he was bald to the base of his skull. What remained of his hair was a neutral tint between gray and black and was kept closely cropped. He contrived to look at once prim and irascible, scholarly and acute. Sherlock Holmes, perhaps, with a touch of old maidishness. The world knew him for a writer of books on historical crises. They were cumbersome books with cumbersome titles, well, written by a scholar for scholars. They brought him fame and not a little money. The money he could have afforded to be without since he was modestly wealthy by inheritance. He was essentially a cold-blooded animal, uh, a bachelor, a man of regular and temperate habits, fastidious and fond of quietude and simple comforts. Nobody is ever likely to know why Everton adopted the orphan daughter of a man whom he knew but slightly and neither liked nor respected. He was no lover of children and his humors were sardonic rather than sentimental. I am only hazarding a guess when I suggest that, like so many childless men, he had theories of his own concerning the upbringing of children, which he wanted to see tested. Certain it is that Monica's childhood, which had been extraordinary enough before, passed from the tragic to the grotesque. Everton took Monica from the Bloomsbury Apartments house, where the landlady, already nursing a bad debt, was wondering how to dispose of the child. Monica was then eight years old, and a woman of the world in her small way, why she had lived with drink and poverty and squalor, had never played a game nor had a playmate, had seen nothing but the seamy side of life and had learned skill in practicing her father's petty shifts and mean contrivances. She was grave and sullen and plain and pale, this child who had never known childhood. When she spoke, which was as seldom as possible, her voice was hard and gruff. She was, poor little thing, as unattractive as her life could have made her. She went with Everton without question or demur. She would no more have questioned anybody's ownership than if she had been an inanimate piece of luggage left in a cloakroom. She had belonged to her father, and now that he was gone to his own place, she was the property of whomsoever chose to claim her. Everton took her with a cold kindness, 
in which was neither love nor pity. In return, she gave him neither love nor gratitude, but did as she was desired after the manner of a paid servant. Everton disliked modern children, and for what he disliked in them, he blamed modern schools. It may have been on this account that he did not send Monica to one, or perhaps he wanted to see how a child would contrive its own education. Monica could already read and write, and thus equipped, she had the run of his large library, in which was almost every conceivable kind of book from heavy tombs on abstruse, very difficult to understand, subjects to <laughs> trashy modern novels bought and left there by Miss Gribben. Ever Everton barred nothing, recommended nothing, but watched the tree grow naturally, untended and unpruned. Now, Miss Gribben was Everton's secretary. She was the kind of, well, hatchet-faced, flat-chested, middle-aged, sexless <laughs> woman who could safely share the home of a bachelor without either of them being troubled by the tongue of scandal. Goody. To her duties, elementary, oh, to her duties was now added the instruction of Monica in certain elementary subjects. Thus, Monica learned that a man named William the Conqueror arrived in England in 1066, but to find out what manner of a man this William was, she had to go to the library and read the conflicting accounts of him given by the several historians. From Miss Gribben, she learned bare, irrefutable facts. For the rest, she was left to fend for herself. In the library, she found herself surrounded by all the realms of reality and fancy, each with its door invitingly ajar. Monica was fond of reading. It was indeed almost her only recreation, for Everton knew no other children of her age and treated her as a grown-up member of the household. Thus, she read everything from translations of the Iliad to Hans Andersen, from the Bible to the love gush of the modern female fiction mongers. Everton although he watched her closely and plied her with innocent-sounding questions, was never allowed a peep into her mind. What muddled dreams she may have had of a strange world surrounding the Hampstead house, a world of gods and fairies and demons, oh yeah, and strong silent men making love to sloppy-minded young women, she kept to herself. Reticence was all that she had in common with normal childhood, and Everton noticed, huh, Everton did notice that she never 
played. Unlike most young animals, she did not take naturally to playing. Perhaps the instinct had been beaten out of her by the realities of life while her father was alive. Most lonely children improvise their own games and provide themselves with a vast store of make-believe. But Monica, as sullen-seeming as a caged animal, devoid alike of the naughtiness and the charms of childhood, rarely crying and still more rarely laughing. She moved about the house sedate, to the verge of being wooden. Occasionally, Everton, the experimentalist, had twinges of conscience and grew half afraid. When Monica was 12, Everton moved his establishment from Hampstead to a house remotely situated in the middle of Suffolk, which was part of a recent legacy. It was a tall, rectangular Queen Anne house, standing on a knoll above a marshy field and wind-bowed beech woods. Once, it had been the manor house, but now, well, little land went with it. A short drive passed between rank evergreens from the heavy wrought iron gate to a circle of grass and flower beds in front of the house. Behind was an acre and a half of rank garden given over to weeds and, oh, marigolds. The rooms were high and well lighted, but the house wore an air of depression, as if it were a a live thing, unable to shake off some ancient fit of melancholy. Everton went to live in the house for a variety of reasons. For the most part of a year, he had been trying in vain to let or sell it. And it was when he found that he would have no difficulty in disposing of his house at Hampstead that he made up his mind. The old house, a mile distant from a remote Suffolk village, would give him all the solitude he required. Moreover, he was anxious about his health. His nervous system had never been strong, and his doctor had recommended the bracing air of East Anglia. He was not in the least concerned to find that the house was too big for him. His furniture filled the same number of rooms as it had filled at Hampstead, and the others, eh, he left empty. Nor did he increase his staff of three indoor servants and a gardener. Miss Gribben, now less dispensable than ever, accompanied him, and with them came Monica, see another aspect of life with the same wooden stoicism which Everton had remarked in her upon the occasion of their first meeting. Now, as regarded Monica, Miss Gribbon's duties were then becoming more and more of a sinecure. 
a job without duties, really. Lessons now occupied no more than half an hour a day. The older Monica grew, better she was able to grub for her education in the great library. Between Monica and Miss Gribben, there was neither love nor sympathy, nor was there any affectation of either. In their common duty to Everton, they owed and paid certain duties to each other. Their intercourse began and ended there. Everton and Miss Gribben both liked the house at first. It suited the two temperaments which were alike in their lack of festivity. Asked if she too liked it, Monica said simply, Yes. Hmm. In a tone which implied stolid and complete indifference. All three, in their several ways, led much the same lives as they had at Hampstead. But a slow change began to work in Monica. A change so slight and subtle that weeks passed before Everton or Miss Gribben noticed it. It was late on an afternoon in early spring when Everton first became aware of something unusual in Monica's demeanor. He had been searching in the library for one of his own books, The Fall of the Commonwealth of England, and having failed to find it, went in search of Miss Gribben and met Monica instead at the foot of the long oak staircase. Of her, he casually inquired about the book, and she jerked up her head brightly to answer him with an unwanted smile. Well, yes, I've been reading it. I expect I left it in the schoolroom. I'll go and see. Well, it was a long speech for her to have uttered, but Everton scarcely noticed it at the time. His attention was directed elsewhere. Where? Where did you leave it? He demanded. In the schoolroom, she repeated. Oh, well, I know of no schoolroom, said Everton coldly. He hated to hear anything miscalled, even if it were only a room. Miss Gribben generally takes you for your lessons in either the library or the dining room. Now, if it is one of those rooms, kindly call it by its proper name. Monica shook her head. No, I mean the schoolroom, the big empty room next to the library. That's what it's called. Well, Everton knew the room. It faced north and seemed darker and more dismal than any other room in the house. He had wondered idly why Monica chose to spend so much of her time in a room bare of furniture nothing to sit on than uncovered boards or a cushionless window seat and put it down to her genius for being unlike anybody else. Who calls it that? he demanded. Why, well, it's its name, said Monica, smiling. And she ran upstairs and presently returned with the book, which she handed to him with another smile. He was already wondering at her. It was surprising and pleasant to see her run instead of the heavy and clumsy walk, which generally moved her when she went to 
obey a behest. And she had smiled two or three times in the short space of a minute. And then he realized that for some little while, she had been a brighter and happier creature than she had ever been at Hampstead. How did you come to call that room the schoolroom? He asked as he took the book from her hand. Well, it is the schoolroom, she insisted, seeking to cover her evasion by laying stress on the verb. That was all he could get out of her. As he questioned further, the smiles ceased, and the pale, plain little face became devoid of any expression. He knew then that it was useless to press her, but his curiosity was aroused. He inquired of Miss Gribben and the servant and learned that nobody, nobody was in the habit of calling the long, empty apartment the schoolroom. Clearly, Monica had given it its name, but why? She was so altogether remote from school and schoolrooms. Some germ of imagination was active in her small mind. Everton's interest was stimulated. He was like a doctor who remarks in a patient with some abnormal symptom. Monica seems a lot brighter and more alert than she used to be, he remarked to Miss Gribben. Yes, agreed the secretary. I have noticed that. She is learning to play. To play what? The piano? <laughs> no, no. To play childish games. Haven't you heard her dancing about and singing? Everton shook his head and looked interested. I have not, he said. Possibly my presence acts as a check upon her uh, exuberance. Well, I hear her in that empty room, which she insists upon calling the schoolroom. She stops when she hears my step. Of course, I have not interfered with her in any way, but I could wish that she would not talk to herself. I don't like people who do that. It is somehow uh, uncomfortable. Oh, I didn't know she did, said Everton. Oh, yes, quite long conversations. Now, I haven't actually heard what she talks about, but sometimes you would think she was in the midst of a circle of friends. In that same room, generally, said Miss Gribben with a nod. Everton regarded his secretary with a slow, thoughtful smile. Development, he said, is always extremely interesting. I am glad the place seems to suit Monica. I think it suits all of us. There was a doubtful note in his voice as he uttered the last words, and Miss Grimmon agreed with him with the same lack of conviction in her tone. As a fact, Everton had been doubtful of late if his health had been benefited by the move from Hampstead. Why, for the first week or two, his nerves had been the better for the change of air. But now, he was conscious of the beginning of a relapse. His imagination was beginning to play him tricks, filling his mind with vague, distorted fancies. Sometimes, when he sat up late writing, he was given to working at night on strong coffee. He became a victim of the most distressing, nervous 
symptoms, hard to analyze and impossible to combat, which invariably drove him to bed with a sense of defeat. That same night, he suffered one of the variations of this common experience. It was close upon midnight when he felt stealing over him a sense of discomfort, which he was compelled to classify as fear. He was working in a small room leading out of the drawing room, which he'd selected for his study. And at first he was scarcely aware of the sensation. The effect was always cumulative. The burden was laid upon him straw by straw. It began with his being oppressed by the silence of the house. He became more and more acutely conscious of it until it became like a thing tangible, a prison of solid walls growing around him. Now, the scratching of his pen at first relieved the tension. He wrote words and erased them again for the sake of that comfortable sound, but presently that comfort was denied him, for it seemed to him that that busy noise was attracting attention to himself. Yes, that was it. He was being watched. Now, Everton sat quite still, the pen poised an inch above the half-covered sheet of paper. This was becoming a familiar sensation. Yeah, he was being watched. And by what? And from what corner of the room? He forced a tremulous smile to his lips. Now, one moment he called himself ridiculous. The next, he asked himself hopelessly how a man could argue with his nerves. Experience had taught him that the only cure, and that was a temporary one, was to go to bed. And yet, he sat on, anxious to learn more about himself, to coax his vague imaginings into some definite shape. Imagination told him, mm -hmm, that he was being watched. And although he called it imagination, he was afraid. That rapid beating against his ribs was his heart, warning him of fear. But he sat rigid, anxious, to learn in what part of the room his fancy would place these imaginary watchers for he was conscious of the gaze of more than one pair of eyes being bent upon him. At first the experiment failed. The rigidity of his pose, the hold he was keeping upon himself, acted as a break upon his mind. Presently he realized this and uh, relaxed the tension striving to give his mind that perfect freedom which might have been demanded by a hypnotist or one experimenting in telepathy. Almost at once, he thought of the door. The eyes of his mind veered round in that direction as the needle of a compass veers to the magnetic north. With these eyes of his imagination, he saw the door and it was standing half open and the aperture was thronged with faces. What kind of faces? He could not tell. They were just faces. Imagination left it at that. But 
he was aware that these spies were timid, timid, that they were in some ways as fearful of him as he was of them, that to scatter them, he had but to turn his head and gaze at them with the eyes, not of his mind, but of his body. The door was at his shoulder. He turned his head suddenly and gave it one swift glance out of the tail of his eye. However, imagination deceived him. It had not played him false about the door. It was standing half open, although he could have sworn that he had closed it on entering the room. The aperture was empty. Only darkness, solid as a pillar, filled the space between floor and lintel. But although he saw nothing as he turned his head, he was dimly conscious of something vanishing, a scurrying, noiseless, and incredibly swift something, like the flitting of a trout in clear, shallow water. Everton stood up, stretched himself, and brought his knuckles to his strained eyes. He told himself that he must go to bed. It was bad enough that he must suffer these nervous attacks, but to encourage them was madness. As he mounted the stairs, he was still conscious of not being alone, shy, timorous, ready to melt into the shadows of the walls if he turned his head. They were following him, whispering noiselessly, linking hands and arms, watching him with the fearful, awed curiosity of children. The vicar had called upon Everton. His name was Parslow, and he was a typical country parson of the poorer sort, a tall, rugged, shabby, worried man in the middle forties, obviously embarrassed by the eternal problem of making ends meet on an inadequate stipend. Everton received him courteously enough, but with a certain coldness which implied that he had nothing in common with his visitor. Parslow was evidently disappointed because the new people were not churchgoers nor likely to take much interest in the parish. The two men made half-hearted and vain attempts to find common ground. It was not until he was on the point of leaving that the vicar mentioned Monica. You have, I believe, a little girl, he said. Yes, my small ward. Ah, I expect she finds it lonely here. I have a little girl of the same age. She is at present away at school, but she will be home soon for the Easter holidays. I, I know she would be delighted if your little uh, ward would come down to the vicarage and play with her sometimes. The suggestion was not particularly welcome to Everton, and his thanks were perfunctory. The, this other small girl, although she was a vicar's daughter, well, she might carry the contagion of other modern children and infect Monica with the pertness and slanginess 
which he so detested. Altogether, he was determined to have as little to do with the vicarage as possible. Meanwhile, the child was becoming to him a study of more and more absorbing interest. The change in her was almost as marked as if she had just returned after having spent a term at school. She astonished and mystified him by using expressions which she could scarcely have learned from any member of the household. It was not the jargon of the smart young people of the day which slipped easily from her lips, but the polite family slang of his own youth. Hmm. For instance, she remarked one morning that Mead, the gardener, was a whale at pruning vines. A whale! The expression took Everton back a very long way down the level road of the spent years, took him indeed to a nursery in a solid, respectable house in a Belgravian square, where he had heard the word used in that same sense for the first time. His sister Gertrude, aged 10, notorious in those days for picking up loose expressions, announced that she was getting to be a whale at French. Yes, in those days, an expert was whale or a dawn, not as he is today, a stout fellow. Oh yeah, today. But who was a whale nowadays? Why, it was years since he had heard the term. Where did you learn to say that? He demanded in so strange a tone that Monica stared at him anxiously. Well, isn't it right? She asked eagerly. She might have been a child at a new school, fearful of not having acquired the fashionable phraseology of the place. It is a slang expression, said the purist coldly. It used to mean a person who was proficient in something. How did you come to hear it? She smiled without answering, and her smile was mysterious, even coquettish, after a childish fashion. Silence had always been her refuge, but it was no longer a sullen silence. She was changing rapidly and in a manner to bewilder her guardian. He failed in an effort to cross-examine her, and later in the day, he consulted Miss Gribben. That child, he said, is reading something that we know nothing about. Well, just at present, said Miss Gribben, she is glued to Dickens and uh, Stevenson, I believe. Well, then where on earth does she get her expressions? Oh, I don't know, the secretary retorted testily, any more than I know how she learned to play Cat's Cradle. That game with string, does she play that? I found her doing something quite complicated and elaborate the other day, something, I don't know, she wouldn't tell me how she learned to do it. I, I took the trouble to question the servants, but none of them had shown her. Everton frowned. And I know of no book in the library which tells how to perform tricks with string. Why do you think she's made a clandestine friendship with any of the village children? Miss Gribben shook her head. She's too fastidious for that. Besides, she seldom goes into the village alone. There, for the time, the discussion ended, and Everton, with all the curiosity of the student, watched the child as 
carefully and closely as he was able, without at the same time arousing her suspicions. She was developing fast. He had known that she must develop, but the manner of her doing so amazed and mystified him, and likely as not denied some preconceived theory. The untended plant was not only growing, but showed signs of pruning. It was as if there were outside influences at work on Monica, which could have come neither from him nor from any other member of the household. Winter was dying hard, and dark days of rain kept Miss Gribben, Monica, and Everton within doors. He lacked no opportunities of keeping the child under observation, and once on a gloomy afternoon passing the room which she had named the schoolroom, he paused and listened until he became suddenly aware, oh, that his conduct bore an unpleasant resemblance to eavesdropping. The psychologist and the gentleman engaged in a brief struggle in which the gentleman temporarily got the upper hand. Everton approached the door with a heavy step and flung it open. The sensation he received as he pushed open the door was vague, but slightly disturbing, and it was by no means new to him. Several times of late, generally after dark, he had entered an empty room with the impression that it had been occupied by others until the very moment of his crossing the threshold. His coming disturbed not merely one or two, but a crowd. He felt rather than heard them scattering, flying swiftly and silently as shadows to incredible hiding places where they held breath and watched and waited for him to go. Into the same atmosphere of tension, he now walked and looked around him as if expecting to see more than only the child who held the floor in the middle of the room or some telltale trace of other children in hiding. Now, had the room been furnished, he might have looked involuntarily for shoes protruding from under tables or settees or for ends of garments unconsciously left exposed. The long room, however, was empty. We'll say for Monica, from wainscot to wainscot and from floor to ceiling. Fronting him were the long high windows starred by fine rain. With her back to the white filtered light, Monica faced him, looking up to him as he entered. He was just in time to see a smile fading from her lips. He also saw by a slight convulsive movement of her shoulders that she was hiding something from him in her hands, clasped behind her back. And that's where we'll stop for now. Good night.